Kubrick's Universe, Episode 6, David O'Reilly. Real one. Our highly skilled team are focused on bringing you the optimal experience. experience. So many answers we may never know. Too many questions, get on with the show. No time for the chorus, only this bus. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. About this time, the town of Waterford was in a state of general excitement from the threat generally accredited of an English film crew invasion. In the summer, a gang of artists, craftsmen, actors, and technicians traveled to Southern Ireland to commence filming of the motion picture Barry Lyndon, directed by the legendary Stanley Kubrick. First position, everyone. Quick as you can. Let's get shooting. Rain's coming in. Okay, everyone, weather is against us here. Cue red coats. Okay, Malcolm, cue the horses. And action! Hey guys, welcome back. Brand new episode of Kubrick's Universe. We've got a special guest for you today, in fact two of them. One of them is doing double duty, that's right. Mr. Stephen Rigg, our producer extraordinaire, is also doing double duty as your host today. I was unable to attend this uh, day that we recorded. I was just so busy flossing my cat all afternoon. It's a rather laborious process. Um, But in our never-ending attempt to exploit the US-UK connection that swirls within Kubrick's universe, I thought it was a lovely idea to have Mr. Rigg conduct this interview. We really hope you like it. We've got today for you David O'Reilly. Now, David O'Reilly is one of the leading feature film location managers in the film industry today. I mean, he's worked with many well-known directors over the years, including Christopher Nolan, Tim Burton, and Michael Mann, covering films like Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, and Black Hat. Uh, David's also managed uh, locations for the Harry Potter, Fast and Furious, X-Men, Mission Impossible, and Star Wars franchises. That's right. His latest film is the new Han Solo film. Now, David's also written for various sketch shows for the BBC, as well as having won the BBC Funny Hunt Award in 2006. After spending the last two-plus decades working with some of the world's greatest film directors, David has now written and directed his own film called Kubrick by Candlelight, and it's an original story set against the backdrop of when Kubrick went to Ireland to shoot Barry Lyndon in 1973. But I'm going to turn it over to Stephen and David, because I'm sure David can tell you a lot about it. We've all had a chance to see it, can't highly recommend it enough. So with all that said, Stephen, my good man, I'm turning it over to you, sir. Knock him dead, make us proud. 
Uh, welcome to Kubrick's Universe, David. Hi, Stephen. Hi. You've certainly done your research. That's <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We do our best. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, um, can you tell us what the film is about, briefly? So, so uh, as you as you said, uh, I suppose ultimately it's about Kubrick filming in uh, in Ireland in 1973 with Barry Lyndon. Um, and as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure most listeners know, there's a sort of myth and a legend about uh, his his life at the time after Clockwork Orange. He'd, he'd received death threats in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, the legend goes, and, and I suppose it's not legend, it is true. He, uh, on one night in in Dublin, got a phone call, a threatening phone call, and then the next day left Ireland and never came back. Mm. So that that's the that was kind of the beginning legend behind it um as it turns out now i've met people i've met the person who answered the phone call um and it was real and it was threatening and and i would say most people think it was the ira um but my story then is a rip-roaring comedy <laughs> <laughs> um about the behind the scenes filming and how my my little romantic comedy dovetails with that moment basically so my my carry on linden which is basically what we ended up thinking it was <laughs> uh, i'm not sure if that'll that'll cross over to american listeners but um but it makes sense to you uh, basically an ealing comedy set behind the scenes of a of a of a kubrick film mm. uh, dovetails in with that moment when that phone call was made and obviously i i take a position on who made that call if that makes sense Much has been written about the infamous phone call that sent Stanley Kubrick running from Ireland. History recalls that on seeing English soldiers portrayed in the fields of Ireland, the Irish Republican Army made the threatening call. But, as with most of life's moments of fear and desire, it is often matters of the heart that rule the mind. It's not the costume department. I want you to get a message to Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick, right? Take this down. If you carry on parading our boys around the place dressed as Englishmen, we're coming for him. We're coming for you, Kubrick. Cheerio now. Are you in a position to tell us whether the person you put in the film as being the person who answered that call is that the actual person who did answer it, the call uh, it isn't I, funny enough the person who i spoke to about it was michael stevenson um who was a second ad who worked on barry i mean he his first job was on lawrence of arabia but his he's worked on um he worked on the shining and he, he, you'll see him throughout the, all the behind the scenes of the shining so he worked on a lot of stanley kubrick films but he, so he he's the guy. Um, I think it was a makeup woman answered the phone in Dublin Castle, and then she handed it straight to Michael, um, and he spoke to them. And I and I've sat, uh, I've worked with Michael, but I've also sat and talked to him at length about it. And he he was convinced that it was was the Irish Republican Army. And 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 I suppose what isn't uh, written is that they already received a few bits and pieces before, so it mm. wasn't just a off. It there was a bit of trouble. Ultimately, as uh, uh, partly what the film's about is, you know, he he was in Ireland in 1973 
filming a film with British redcoats, and most of the British redcoats were played by Irish soldiers. Yeah, right. Probably it was a contentious time to be doing that anyway. Of course, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so so Michael Stevenson was second AD on that film. Um, my character, funny enough, uh, well, I won't give it away. <laughs> um, it is similar, but obviously it's not based on him or, or or based on any kind of truth, if that makes sense. Yeah, but, right. Okay, yes. Uh, where did the idea come from? Uh, I, I mean, did you firstly want to make a short film and then thought, you know, what's a good subject and came up with a premise? Or did you uh, think about uh, a film about, about Kubrick and Barry Lyndon uh, beforehand and then you thought, let's develop this into a short film? Which came first? Um, I, I suppose it's a really good question, actually. I, I suppose, like yourself, and I'm sure like everyone listening, I'm a massive Stanley Kubrick fan. I suppose also my life, I suppose they say write about what you know. So I suppose up until that point, I've spent quite a good portion of my life on film sets. So I kind of know the shenanigans that goes on. Less so now, but, you know, that kind of idea of the travelling circus and the kind of how everyone um, turns into kind of uh, hot, hot-tempered and hot um, and generally hot um when they're away from home. It's this very strange, childish, kind of slightly British thing where a film crew that goes away instantly becomes a kind of mad drinking. <laughs> yes, I've experienced that myself. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you why. But, um, um, but it's, yeah, so I've always been fascinated by that. And also, I suppose I've been fascinated by the idea of something like Barry Lyndon, which is a a huge fan of um is a stunning film but i know the reality of making that film would have been people with hangovers bacon sandwiches smoking woodbines you know uh, block toilets you know all of the kind of yeah the, the, gr- the grittiness of filmmaking is is forgotten when you see a, a stunning image by john alcott on screen you know what i mean yeah to an audience it kind of romanticize every aspect of it even the filmmaking element yeah exactly so somewhere so somewhere in between all of that i i wanted to make a short film um and i thought well i suppose it should be about filmmaking i suppose and 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 i think i'd i think i'd just been reading everything about barry Lyndon at the time and it kind of that finding out about that moment with the phone call gave me a kind of uh, light bulb in the head and i thought well maybe if i can bring my film towards that point um whilst making the kind of film i wanted to make which was obviously fairly hopefully very funny but kind of uh, light and romantic comedy so it was so somewhere in between was the was the moment where it kind of all came together and it was my filmmaking past my my obsession with well probably i suppose it is obsession but with with stanley kubrick and and then a kind of moment in my life i suppose where um having worked on films a lot i suppose the only way you can shut up the voice in your head which is saying my god aren't these being made very badly is to go and make your own film Mm, so yeah those three aspects came together about two years ago and then and and my 20 minute script came out of that i suppose right cool yeah so the script itself uh, beat off 150 other scripts at the 2016 film Offerle, is that pronounced right? At the, sh- right. the Short Film Award. Did this yeah. help you to get the film funded? Yeah, so I, I, I suppose it's a, it's a weird thing. I mean, you, you produce films as well, I know, but um, it's, 
we in the end we pretty much financed it ourselves but winning that pushed us and and we and we received eight thousand euros um to kind of film it basically and obviously eight thousand euros doesn't go very far anymore at all really for a, mm. any kind of film um but certainly not for a film which is trying to set itself in 1973 but also 1770 <laughs> yeah film on location lots of characters old cars horses you know so very quickly that money went but however would we have actually gone and done it without that starter money probably not so it was a great motivator in terms of getting it going if that makes sense yeah. because then because then we had a deadline and we had someone to deliver to and so it, it was a real motivator um and and I, and 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 whilst it wasn't it had no effect on my application my parents are from offley we ended up shooting it all there which was part of the it's part of the deal is is that you, you that you win the award and you have to shoot the entire film in that county oh, yeah, okay. uh, so um so yeah so it was a great it was great to win i mean let's face it as you say it was 150 scripts so they obviously liked it um and then and then the pressure was on we had to make it and then very quickly we realized it was going to cost a fortune <laughs> <laughs> oh so that's interesting that you had the awfully connection that's where the festival was and that kind of worked in with the the barry linden thing yeah pretty much i mean i suppose it it I thought it would have a massive effect on my application. So I'd go, they go, oh, wow, this is an amazing story. It's your where your parents are from and where you kind of half brought up. And But actually, they, it didn't, it wasn't part of the application, bizarrely. So the first time they found out was during the kind of final eight interview. Um, so hopefully it was it was accepted on the basis that it was a good script, which I think, I think that's what it was because I got to that stage without them even knowing. But, but then, and subsequently, it's a good story, obviously, because it's me. It's almost the story of what I'm filming, which is, it, despite my name and my accent, I suppose I'm an Irish citizen, but um, but I've got an Irish passport. But but basically, it was a British film crew coming back to a small Irish village to shoot a film about a British film crew coming to shoot in a small Irish village. So there was kind of, there, we we were our, our, our own story at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm and I'm sure the script got to that stage because it was a great script, and it really was. I can vouch for that. I've been seeing the film. Uh, so uh, Brian Cox, for our listeners, uh, Brian Cox is the narrator of the film. How did you get him on board, David? Well, I, I'd say it was very the very 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 last thing. So I, it was obviously written with a, a narrator in mind, and or, or written with a narrator, and I, and I suppose it was a perfect it's a perfect character in the film to get someone famous because, because they, it, ultimately it's probably an hour's work. They don't have to do anything apart from talking to a microphone. Um, so it was sort of structured that way, but then we shot the film in December of last year. So 2016, um, then I went off to scout uh, for my day job. So everything kind of slowed down and we waited for an editor and then, uh, and so for a long while I was the, the narrator on the film as we edited it um and we had a good list of people that we wanted or you know uh, basically we had a long list that anyone who said yes you'd go fantastic so <laughs> yeah um and then so it, it was almost i think maybe june or may or june before the few emails went out and the timing was right which is kind of what it 
always is with small money and short films is you know any number of people did actually express interest but they were like well we can do it in you know october and yeah. you know and uh, so it was the timing was right we had a few deadlines to to reach for festivals and things like that so it was brian cox's agent um said yeah he loves it he'd love to do it he can do it this thursday and this was like tuesday afternoon <laughs> right you're like uh okay <laughs> so we scrambled and and found um the guy who'd already done our uh, sound mixing and adr had sort of said panicked and said yeah we can we can get you somewhere at five o'clock on a thursday afternoon um and he um yeah he turned up and as you could imagine was just brilliant straight away um and and how many and how many takes do you ask of someone like that <laughs> and did did his um his narration script differ um you know did he bring any personal touches to it or did he pretty much stick with the the um the same dialogue that you recorded he pretty much stuck with it. I suppose, funny enough, he he had he hadn't seen it. He'd liked the script, and I don't think he'd fully taken on board. And you're, you've seen it, so you'll know that it's not exactly straight narration. He has to kind of break the fourth wall and mm-hmm. talk to some of the characters, um, or one of the yeah, characters. Great moment. And so I don't think he'd entirely taken that on board. And then when we were in the in the booth, he was like, "Oh, okay, I see." And and actually, that at that moment, it could have all fallen apart in the sense it wasn't just narration. It was actually kind of acting to a certain extent. Um, but you know, hundred percent absolute pro just completely, um, completely blew it out of the park. And then actually I, I'm someone saw it a few weeks back and at, at encounters in Bristol and they said, Oh, did you have them both? Did you have him on set or did you have him in the same room or, um, and I was like, no, it was like seven months apart. So that's a testament to him that he made that look so easy, which is why, which is why people get good people, isn't it? They make it look easy, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the moment where um, where the narrator integrates with the actor on screen, that moment, it was it was a pretty amazing moment actually. Not because of the actual the gag itself as written, yeah. but the way it actually. <laughs> happened and how those two, well like you say it's it's down to um brian brian who made that work at that point because obviously the actor had done all his work already uh the actor in that scene what was what was interesting is we had our first screening um at encounters film festival in bristol um and and of course i've seen it lots of times and everything that might have been funny is no longer funny at all to me um and i and obviously, like most people who make their own artistic projects of any kind, I sort of sometimes hate it, sometimes love it. And what was bizarre was actually sitting with a, a, a full house cinema um, was people laughing at that moment. And of course, it wasn't funny to me because it's like, well, I know I've already I've known forever since I wrote it that the, the narrator would talk to the person. Um, and of course, for people who'd never seen it before, it was they were laughing at it, and I was I was I was almost offended until I realised it was no longer my film anymore. It's now it's now the audience's film, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So so I'm I'm so I'm glad it worked in the sense it, it it because there was such a big gap in between shooting it and and it happening and the way we had to do it so quickly that it it could have. It could have stumbled in some ways, but because he was so good and he, it didn't phase him at all, it was just, you know, it was brilliant. It, it worked perfectly. And you, and you recorded that together. Were you present at the at the recording? I was, yeah. So it was just me, Brian, and, um, and Robert, who was the um, the sound mixer. Um, and it was great. Yeah, it was just he, you know, turned up and 
did the business, had a great chat. Um, and, and what's interesting about Brian Cox, obviously he's known as a kind of Scottish actor, really, but he, but he's, I would say, something like 90% Irish, so he felt very connected to... Ah, right, interesting. Very connected to the story, but also he's a massive Kubrick fan, massive Barry Lyndon fan as well. So, And I, I can't remember if he told me a Kubrick story. I think... I think he may have auditioned or something or or seen Kubrick for Eyes Wide Shut. I can't remember if he said that. I'll have to check whether that's true or not. But but he but but whatever, he was a massive he's a massive Barry Lyndon fan. Um but yeah, so it was kind of turned on by that, also by the Irish aspect of it. Yeah. Which um which his his family came over from, from Ireland to, to Dundee um at the turn of the century, I suppose. Last century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, good. So, uh, what about the rest of the cast? Had you worked with any of them before, or where did you find them? Find them actually. A few, yeah, a few of them. I suppose the main actors, um, Dara O'Toole, is our as our kind of romantic lead. He um, he's from Tullamore, where we shot it. So there was kind of a connection. Although he was, he is, and and was then is becoming a kind of very well known Irish actor. He, he was in a, a TV series over there, which also played on BBC One in the UK, called Red Rock. Um, which was like a sort of police station drama, um, and and so he was kind of on. He's on. He is on the way up. Um, and luckily, then I emailed him and said, "Oh, you know, I'm doing a film in your hometown. Do you want to be involved?" And of course, he said yes straight away, which was great for us. Um, and then similarly with Amy, who's our female lead, we I had seen a thing called um, "We're Doomed: The Dad's Army Story," which was a BBC four no BBC two thing a couple of Christmases ago about but funny enough about the making of Dad's Army so it was another making of um, and she played the main writer's um, secretary and I, it just it was one of those things where you kind of make a mental note um, you know you just go oh well it'd be good if I ever do something that I can yeah be available sort of thing and of course then six months later seven months later i emailed her agent and she came and met us in in dublin for an afternoon she she's english but she's based in in dublin right yeah um, and so so she came and met us and, and it was one of those cliches but the the moment i met her i thought well she's she's in um and and, uh, and she's turned in a fantastic performance and she's yeah hopefully she does really well out of it and then some of the other people in the smaller roles i'd i'd done uh, other very tiny short films with um, Mark Webb and Lisa Moore, um, who are kind of smaller parts in the film. Um, and then, yeah, and then just um, Phelan Drew um, came in and did a half a day for us. And his he's a, a very famous Irish actor, but his his dad was in the Dubliners, so he's kind of Irish royalty to a certain extent. Um, and he came in and did half a day for us and just kind of was incredible um, and and blew the room away in his half day. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I, I, I put the cast together myself, really. And, and luckily, I think they all kind of work together, funny enough. And I suppose ultimately that it was Dara and Amy as the lead. If, it, if they hadn't had chemistry or you hadn't felt something, then, again, it's a cliche. If you don't feel the chemistry, it won't work on screen. And I think they, they sort of do. They feel like a sort of hot seventies couple, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They, they work perfectly well together, uh, and it, it's nice when you uh, make those uh, those mental notes, isn't it? Like you did with when you saw Amy in the Dad's Army thing, and then you can actually you can pull that note out at some point and actually use it, and you know you're not wasting your time putting all these notes down every it's, time. It's, it's true, isn't it? Because like you 
you, how many of them have we made that, n- that never come to fruition? And and there's one that actually you go, actually, no, I do remember her, and and now I can actually contact her with a project. I mean, it's it's sort of what you you, you dream about those notes being able to do, you know what I mean? But uh, so that was one of those, yeah, which is great. Yeah. Did you have a rehearsal period with the with the actors? Is it something that you found to be a necessity? I mean, of course, some of this is down to budget, isn't it? Whether you can get rehearsals it's, it's in budget, yeah, it's budget really, and also bizarrely then my kind of situation which is i live in southwest london and i work here and um so going over was uh, to film was even a big you know it was, it was basically like filming well it was it was basically filming abroad you know which is kind of what i do in a day job but um but but we're doing it on a tiny budget so 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 but we did and i thought it was essential just to kind of because we didn't have a lot of time on set and we were racing through different scenes, I thought, well, let's at least try and do half a day in Dublin, even if it's a couple of days before, which is what we did, with Dara and Amy and Mark uh, Griffin, who came in, who's the villain of the piece. Um, and they'd all met then since before that, and it was all... So, so it was beginning. they were beginning to form a relationship, which was good. But I just thought, in my inexperience, I just thought the amount of time we're going to have on set, we, we ought to at least have a few pages under our sleeves and and some of the scenes and you'll have seen out of choice because we were trying to replicate Barry Lyndon's style we kind of ran as one shot um so that's quite that's quite a feat it's not a feat for the crew because we just turn the camera on and go for it but it's quite a feat for actors to do like two pages and move and be good as well a particular shot that uh, now you mentioned that I'm just casting my mind back one of the long shots that I actually picked up on there and then without a second viewing was kind of the, the, the drill instructor kind of scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's quite a long scene. I, th- I think um, uh, the guy playing Stanley, Stanley Kubrick walks in on the left. At the, in, in fact, exactly. I, re- I rewound that scene, actually. I don't often do that, but I rewound that scene just to re- re-look at that. So that's one of the long takes, isn't it? The one there that I've just described. Yeah, yeah that's, that all plays out. And then and then I think... And, then, and when they meet in the field... Um, it's, it's a, and it's all done in one take and so that's really difficult for them but it's also quite difficult for us in the edit then because if you feel like it's lagging or something didn't work then you've you've ultimately just got to choose a take you can't get your, you can't get yourself out of it because you're trying because you've because you've set out to do it in one shot so it's um i learned a lot i'll, I'll tell you <laughs> every single minute of the day despite how long i've been in the film industry it was it was we learned more in the four days filming than i i ever have because because they're choices you make on the day that you have to live with then you know um, yeah they, i think they pull some of those longer scenes off and of course we, that's what we were trying to do was in in 18 minutes kind of replicate some of those moments in barry linden which are you know the slow zooms yeah and the opening shot yeah three and a half hours long so we couldn't replicate the, the the pace obviously um and and you're you've seen it we kind of meant we even talk about the pace of films during the film so we're kind of hopefully almost talking about our film not being like barry london because one of the characters says we need to speed it up and let's get going because i'd, lo- I'd obviously we if, if we shot a three and a half hour story about behind the scenes of Barry Lyndon. It probably would make sense, wouldn't it, to do a three and a half hour. But um <laughs> but yeah, so eighty minutes and a comedy. Yeah. Um, you've got to you've got to keep the pace up, I suppose. It's quite a feat. The other long take that you mentioned there, which has 
which is the one where uh, when Amy's trying to get Dora to move further and further away from, from uh, Stanley's camera. Uh, that's the other yeah. take that we're talking about, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So that yeah. one and the earlier one indoors with the drill instructor kind of thing. Um, how many takes did you do with both of those? Um, I was, gosh, we were under so much pressure because it was December, so it was getting dark at you know two half two three o'clock in 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 Republic of Ireland at that time early December. Um, so the the field scene, which was for me like the most complex one, because they had to keep moving and act and be funny and romantic and and the uh, and the uh, walkie talkie element and the walkie talkie and yeah. there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on, and so it was quite that was quite harsh to do and we were running out of light and it began to rain everything you could possibly imagine was happening um and i think we probably only did maybe three or four takes which there's still a lot obviously but then as you as i said that means then you've really only got three or four options which is which one do you go for you know um the and then um the and then that that was actually one of our opening bits of filming was the drill instructor bit um Again, I think Lisa was so well prepared and, and knew knew what I was referencing, obviously, which is was Arlie Emery and, and Full Metal Jacket. So it was kind of an easy, kind of easy reference for her to watch and kind of imbue that kind of attitude without without swearing, obviously, massively. <laughs> yes, um, oh, she does. Um, uh, so that so that was a few takes. Not, we just never had time to to sit and and go over one. I mean, the one that we probably did the most takes of it is our opening shot, which is a big number and but that was more down to just coordinating all of those elements so it was for for people listening and you've seen it but it's the opening shot is trying to replicate a shot in barry linden where they're watching the marching band um and so it was a slow zoom but it involved i'd say 30 or 40 extras some of them were marching um we had two horses we had old uh, six or seven classic vw campers and cars um stanley kubrick has to come on to the plinth and turn the camera on and we have first ad's moving and so that one in 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 a sense that one took more takes because there's just a lot going on you know what i mean in terms of getting it right and the zoom being in the right place but um and but but actually i hopefully that shot works but and then obviously what we did with that because we shot it in tullamore in county offley then we visual effects the mountain which i can never i can never remember what it's called but um the mountain in waterford which they shot in front of for that scene um but yeah so it was uh, yeah our, we had a visual effects guy called paddy eason who's worked on loads of different films and he um yeah it, he, we got someone to go and take a picture of the real place we we ended up calling it tit hill which is is kind of i imagine what it's called locally but it does have a very romantic irish name as well um but he, uh, yeah, we had a few vi- uh, reference pictures and then he very expertly stuck that in, made it look good, brought rain clouds coming in from the side and stuff. So it looks, looks fantastic. We were really happy with that. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, yeah, because of the, I suppose if we had, if we had had our own money and we had no stipulations, of course, the plan would have been to go and shoot in that field. That would have been the ultimate, but the, the, the stipulation was we had to shoot the whole film in that county. Yeah. So, um, so we, yeah, we just found a flat field um, with a fairly good line, if you know what I mean. So it was a kind of a matte line for us to work with. Yeah. Then, um, and then, yeah, luckily it kind of comes off really. I mean, it feels 
feels like we're there. Funny enough, Brian Cox, when he was standing in the studio with me, said, oh, my God, it's fantastic. You went back to the original place. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, well, if I can... If I can if i can fool uh one of the a venerable actor like brian then i think we've probably done a very good visual effects job yes it? yes indeed I, I, and if you can fool a fan like me well that's great yeah no i, I mean and, and you know there was there's obviously tons of things that we could have that i would have wanted to do with that we didn't have enough extras and but i i sort of factored in my head about rationalizing why that why it is that way and it was take one of 90 takes and you know so hmm. But and and on a budget, what can you do? You can't have two hundred soldiers. Put it that way, I suppose. No, and the weather is something that no one ever even thinks about. I and mean, I'm sure you'll know with all the location filming you've done that even the sun can stop you shooting, can't it? With the with the clouds, that was a surprise to me when I, you know when I did my feature film a few years ago. Uh, I thought, okay, we've got we've had snow this week. We've got we've had rain. We've had hailstones. But we're stopping because of the sun. <laughs> you know, that was an eye-opener to me. It's, it is like war, uh, basically, making films. It's like you're up against all of the elements, but ultimately you're up against time. Um, and I think, and I, I'll, I'll be paraphrasing it, but, I can, but I'm sure you, there's a quote from Stanley Kubrick about what he regarded as the limitations of filming. And I'm sure it's something like just it, the only limitations are weather and time. I think that's, I think I think that's probably a quote from him when he had the power to shoot for fourteen months. I'm sure, but um, but um, but uh, yeah, it's, you're just up against it. And um, four days for all of the stuff we needed, even though it was you know twenty page script, but we had so many different. We did three churches in ninety minutes. We we stipulated that each one should only take us thirty minutes. Okay, so uh, Michael Thomas Nolan, he he joins the ranks of actors playing a, a fictionalized version of Stanley Kubrick. Uh, how did you find how did you find Michael, and how do how do you think he he did? I was very what? I was very impressed with, yeah. with, the, with the enigmatic performance that he did. I think every I think everyone is. Um, I well, there's a there's a website you probably used it, it exists in the UK as well called Star Now, um, and it's sort of a casting website for people i suppose with our agents but sometimes with agents and it's just an open source kind of casting thing and so I, I, in the early stages i knew that i would we'd have to have a kubrick um but he but if if we didn't have a good one then it would be very much in the background and you would never really feel his presence you know he was kind of a an enigma which would 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 also fit the concept that you never you never saw him really and then I went through this. Um, it, it was as simple as as simple as diff and as difficult as putting in keywords like uh, uh, Dublin uh, actor male beard, beard. <laughs> and, then, and then and then and then pressing uh, pressing the the arrow key through many thousands of people, some with beards, some women with beards, and, and you know, and it <laughs> go on and on. And then I found two people. And one was a, a, a both from Dublin, and both um, had beards. And one, I was like, "Well, you know what? I think he could work, but I would have to put him at the back and not really, you know, he he wouldn't be a feature. I wouldn't put the camera on him." The next one was Michael and and the, uh, Mike Nolan. And then I I was like, and then there was one picture of him, and I was like, "Oh my god, there's the beard coming, the hairline." And I thought, you know what? I think if he grows that out a bit, I think we might actually have it and as it turns out he's six foot four 
Um, he's he's about twenty three years old. Um, but um, and as and and Kubrick was, I think, maybe five foot six or five foot seven. He was quite a small man. But and and then during Barry Lyndon, I suppose, would have been forties, mid forties. So, so you know, on paper, it shouldn't have worked. But then he rocked up. We put a a big duffel coat on it, a big. Um, uh, Parker on him and the beard was out and and then I felt strangely confident enough to put the camera on him directly because he kind of did he, you know to to I suppose to us you kind of go well it, it isn't the Kubrick that you kind of remember at that time but actually it's pretty close bizarrely and so we I was really lucky um and he was great fun and he's enjoying it immensely ever since because it's um it's it's he gets recognized as stanley kubrick now which is <laughs> amazing uh, if he can make some money out of it then good luck to him but um so yeah so that was our that was the final piece of the puzzle and actually it was such a good piece that i actually decided um to put the camera directly on him at some point um and and we did have one scene which i cut out right during shooting which was it would have been a kind of romeo and julie style scene it's a shame because it'd be quite funny but it would have actually had Kubrick interact with Dara the lead actor um and I suppose I'll I'll save that for the feature film if we ever make one but um but yeah I I, so I was I was I I was very happy and I think the reaction so far to him visually um is that everyone thinks we 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 were lucky, I suppose. I mean, we were lucky. He's great and uh, and looks the part. I think. Yeah, and beyond the beyond the beard, he's got he's got the features. He's got he's kind of got the eyebrows and the eyes, hasn't he? It's just one of those um, bits of luck, really. Is you just you find someone they they want to do it and and it and it works, you know. And and as I say, if we hadn't, then it would have just been another thing. We would have just kept it. Someone, it'd have been in the shadows, I guess, wouldn't it? Throughout, yeah, and it would have been a fake beard sort of job and all of that. So we were just, we were just lucky, and it kind of worked that we could then make him a feature almost of of what of what of what people are expecting. People, I suppose, the title suggests you're going to see him at some stage. So I suppose we gave, we delivered on. Here we are in the Lamb Club in Barrowford on a Thursday night. I'm with Mike. Mike, who is Stanley Kubrick? He was a film director. Did The Shining. Uh, wasn't 2001 A Space Odyssey one of his? Um, lots of other famous films. Uh, <laughs> Full Metal Jacket that was shot in North London uh, back in the mid-80s and my friend Kath lived nearby where it was shot and she told me about the filming of it how about that um, Clockwork Orange that was another of his good one good one uh, lots of good films uh, Doctor Strange Love was his now that is an absolute classic of a movie. We call it Coca-Cola Corporation, etc. Uh, you know, they are into some very good movies. 
so your producer is Vinny Jassel, who, uh, like yourself, has been working as a location manager on some great movies, such as the Kingsman films and the new Star Wars franchise, I believe. Did did the idea of Kubrick back and Light come about while she was working with Vinny? Um, yeah, I think so. What what we did, um, we, we've been working on and off together since... Um, X-Men First Class which shot in the UK and then and then we worked together on Fast and the Furious 6 so we're all we're always talking about movies and then and then what we did and I'm not sure if you've done any of these before but what we did was a um, a 48 hour film challenge a couple of years before so probably 2013 so you kind of you, you it was a science fiction one so you get your title a line of dialogue and a prop and then on the friday on the saturday morning and then by the monday morning you have to deliver a five minute film um and and what's so there's a good good and bad thing about those the good thing is it literally unless you give up it literally motivates you in two days to come up with something yeah um and and deliver it and and whether it's good or not it doesn't matter because actually what it's done is just got you going um so we did one so we decided to do one for the science fiction london film festival i I can't even remember the year now but probably 2014 um and we made one called 11 dimensions was the title we were given um and if you find you'll be able to google it i think it's i think it is on vmo but you're um it has a few little Kubrick references already in it actually it's got the it's got some music it's got the blue danube at the beginning um and there's a little bit of a one-point perspective at the beginning um yeah. and so it was kind of a, a a test run in the sense we were like okay let's just do one and see how we work as a team and 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 it did quite well and we kind of got into a, a finalist and we were then being developed to make a feature film script at least um of of the idea which was low budget which was low cost um time travel so like ryanair time travel <laughs> uh, and so that was that was that's the kind of theory behind it, and it's also the the theory of if you could go back, would you kill Hitler as a baby? So that's oh, if you yeah. if you if you watch it, it's it's about that basically. Um, and so we did that, and it did kind of well. And then we thought, okay, well, but but it's not good enough to to put into festivals, or you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's sort of it's it's a it's like it's like going for a run or something it's like it it's it's not competitive sport but it's good exercise you know what i mean yeah so, i mean it's got to be a, a little bit rough around the edges i guess with only two yeah. two days and that'll be and it'll be watched with those kind of eyes won't it expecting yeah exactly uh, when you and then when you screen it at the at the uh, the thing on the, the monday or whenever they screen it then everyone's looking at it with the idea that actually that's amazing you did it and we, we were even worse no one could work on the saturday <laughs> so we did it and we actually shot and edited it all in 22 hours. What? So we actually we actually split our split our 48 hours in half, and then because everyone said, "Oh, I can't do Saturday," so we rocked up to Shepperton Studios on Sunday morning. Uh, yeah, we shot in a field first, then we went went to Shepperton Studios, and then me and the editor and Vinny worked on it until I suppose one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and then and then handed it in the next day. So we actually we did it in half the time really it's quite a simple short but it was kind of good exercise you know and so so i suppose what came out of that was is that's brilliant we did okay with it and everyone quite liked it and thought it was funny um now what we should really do is do a proper short film which is prepped and ready to go and and then something at the end of it you go okay 
and, and hopefully we're lucky that it is okay is that you can you feel like you can put it out to people in the industry but also to film festivals and, and see what happens with it really mm. so it was it was the 48 hour film challenge that kind of started the the wheel turning basically to make something proper can you, can you just remind our listeners what the name of that film is again uh, 11 it's, it's called 11 dimensions and uh, you'll find it on vmo um and it was it was actually selected at the time as uh, a, a ain't it cool website um, oh yeah yeah actually liked it as one of their saturday shorts oh, at wow. the time. it's quite good fun yeah um, and yeah, it's very simple. And t- to tell you how small it was, I I suppose I'm the second lead character. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I, yeah, I, I was. Vinny was working uh, a smoke machine. Uh, um, my friend Still, who ended up shooting um, uh, Kubrick by candlelight, was on one camera. Um, and I, I'm, because we didn't have enough people, I played. Uh, I suppose the second main character, and and made sure obviously I had all the best lines and uh, got all. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so you you should be able to. Hopefully, you'll be able to find that. If not, I'll 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 sort the link out. And, yeah, and please. Yeah, I'd like to, to see that. Yeah. Very interested in uh, yeah, that, in that kind of start, thing. That's what started it all. And actually, yeah, bizarrely, there's a couple of little early Kubrick references in there uh, at the beginning, which kind of give you a clue as to where we were going. Yeah. Without, Without even knowing what the next project was, it was already in there. Bizarrely, mm. is, is Vinny a Kubrick fan as well, like yourself? He is, yeah. Probably not as much as me, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, definitely, yeah. And I suppose my only regret is I started, uh, I left university in '97, um, and then I started working for a thing called the London Film Commission. And when I was working at the London Film Commission in the location library, which was my first job. Um, they were shooting eyes wide shut and my eventual boss that I worked with quite a lot called Nick Daubeny as a location manager, he was working on um, eyes wide shut and he was one of the many location managers that went through the kind of 14 month shoot. So, so in a strange way, I I missed out on working on it. I suppose if, if I had entered the industry uh, earlier, I would have probably have worked with Nick and I probably would have worked on eyes wide shut. So it was kind of, it, it literally when I was starting out, it he was finishing up, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, mm. And it, yeah. And so, but I know plenty of people that, as I said before, like Michael Stevenson and Nick that, have, that worked with him in various capacities. And everyone always said he was fascinating, a massive family man. You know, I suppose what, what I wanted to get away with away from in my film, even though he's in it a bit is I suppose the idea that he's a kind of, uh, crackpot director which is kind of how he's mythologized a bit isn't he that it's the kind of 200 takes and yeah and i mean in 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 the last few certainly in the last two or three years i think that i think we're getting away from that finally I think so, uh, yeah i mean pe- yeah. people the fans who've been reading about him for 20 30 years have kind of tw- twigged on oh. quite early doors that a lot of this is a myth and legend but yeah. uh, now we've got the uh, the great book by um, emilio Exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and and a few other books. Um, yeah, we kind of discover, hopefully, I mean, it, it's great to have all that at some point, but it's nice to get the real story as well, isn't it? It's, it's, it's good to uh, find out the, the, the real man. I think it's to do, bizarrely, with the internet, really. I suppose if uh, back then it, there wasn't any 
it wasn't gossip and there wasn't kind of a constant information and behind the scenes videos and so so it's very easy even for the pr departments of those films to create a kind of buzz about about the director you know what i mean it's so, because there's because there's no evidence you know like it's all and and now everything's sort of so documented and written about that you know if he was around now we'd all know whether it was true or not because he'd have to be doing interviews even though he didn't like doing that stuff he there'd be you, you know what i mean if that yeah. makes sense it's kind of everything's much more open now because it's an it's almost a commodity behind the scenes and interviews and websites and you know twitter accounts for directors and all of that and instagram yeah so i he's they he'd be much more exposed now which i imagine he'd probably hate but but would know that that was part of the business. I yeah, suppose. that's true. I mean, I, I was really surprised. Uh, recently, I was speaking to uh, Filippo, who uh, wrote the book with Emilio, yes. and uh, uh, he told me that Kubrick actually did 300 interviews in, okay, his, yeah. uh, in, in his time. And I think uh, uh, I think Filippo's tracked all these down. They were not, not, not filmed interviews, but, uh, yeah. you know... Uh, audio interviews or, or straight to print interviews. I, I was astounded uh, that he'd done so many. Uh, so, so he wasn't shy from speaking. He was just, yeah, he was just not too keen on being on the chat shows circuit. Which, to be honest, for uh, for directors, I would imagine, unless you're that way out, is is probably right anyway. I mean, it's you, you're kind of letting your work do the the talking although as as you said he obviously did enough and and i've yeah i've read plenty of interviews for each film that he made and he 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 was obsessed by the publicity as well so he you know in terms of he he monitored millimeters of of adverts in papers and stuff Mm -hmm. so he he, it's not like he was completely shy of it at all really he was actually kind of into it i think so he was always interested about how the posters were designed and 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 how uh, how how it was the film was going to be advertised really so I, I i think yeah it's it's interesting how myths and legends start about people and, and i suppose the moment you decline to do an interview then that gives it shouldn't do but it gives the person who who's getting declined the opportunity to create something that didn't exist and, and i suppose it didn't take long for the the newspapers particularly in britain to realize they could probably make as much as much up as they wanted to knowing that they weren't ever getting responses from him or from the estate so and, and i suppose as long as they weren't you know saying anything particularly terrible about him which it wasn't really terrible was it it was just a myth making it helps yeah i mean Again, he was such a, a genius of, of at all levels in terms of filmmaking, but also about advertising and marketing. He he would have known bizarrely that 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 being aloof helped him. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, I mean it's it's all part of the of the machine. He's so he's so precise about everything else. There's there's no doubt he would have been precise about knowing how he was perceived helped help the films i mean it's not it's not he he he's he was too clever not to know that I yeah suppose. that's true uh, yeah i wonder if you picked up uh that with someone like marlon brando who i suppose was an, an uh someone who kind of did that a decade or two before stanley did yeah, yeah i think it's um i suppose it's what i'm trying to think of the phrase but i suppose if if they're not talking about you they don't know about you i think i've totally ruined a um an Oscar Wilde quote, I think. That. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, 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 I'll tell you what, I've got the quote for you, Steve. Well done. Don't, 
there's only one thing in the world worse than being talked about yeah. and that not being talked that's about. the one well done there you go oscar wilde um <laughs> so that's that's basically what i was saying <laughs> so a good director is only as good as his producer um i, I believe uh did Vinny keep the cast and crew happy and provide you with everything that you needed yeah i mean it was I, there's no doubt about it it was a tough shoot we came with no prep we didn't really know we you know we brought a few people from the uk like still as dop and sound man tim and people that we knew came with us but we couldn't bring everyone because we couldn't afford it so we had a brand new crew really of of really enthusiastic irish um young irish filmmakers but it's difficult because you're just coming in late to things and they're kind of of, and also i suppose we didn't even realize how big it was going to be but but we had a slight inkling but 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 actually then turning up with vehicles and horses and extras and costumes is quite daunting for any new filmmaker to be honest um and, and we took it in our stride in some ways because we've lived on those kind of sets but it's different when you're paying for it all i suppose but um yeah. but he was tough he, he, he had a tough time you know it was it was there was a lot to do I was quite tough with him because that's our and and he doesn't and he doesn't mind me being tough with him, <laughs> but um but it uh, it there's nothing more gut wrenching than making a piece of work whether it's uh, I suppose it I suppose ultimately filming is the is the most obvious way to describe this because it's so expensive, but it, when it's your own money to a certain extent does it actually makes you physically ill yes <laughs> because you know time, time is money and you're literally if something's not going right and you know you, you'd feel bad if you're a director and producer and it was the studio's money you know you would but when it's physically your money <laughs> it's actually um yeah it actually makes you quite ill <laughs> um and that's difficult because then also you're trying to make a comedy um you're in you're in charge of that creative process so your energy has to be at a good level um at the same time as as all of that going on so uh, what i would say and who knows what will happen next but it's it's difficult i wouldn't want to do it with my own money into such an extent um because it's it doesn't allow you to enjoy the process and and i think for comedy at least it could be different for other kind of films I feel like as a comedy director, I'd I'd want to be having fun with the actors, and that would come out on screen if that makes sense. Yeah, but yeah, it certainly. Does, it does. But I don't know whether that's I don't know I, I haven't spoken to many comedy directors about that. I suppose, but but certainly whenever you're paying for something, when you're, it, it's it's brutal when the weather's not going well or something breaks, and you know you just see your money disappearing by the hour or the minute yeah i mean i mean i guess that could happen being i mean i, mean, I suppose a director is the, the you know the leader of the gang uh the, the, the ultimate um man responsible for everything so perhaps even if you were working with um a, st- a studio's money for example oh, I'd, imagine, I'd imagine you'd still get the similar anxieties whether it was out of your pocket or out of theirs because you know you're ultimately responsible uh, i mean at what point did that anxiety start to kick in was it once you got to ireland on the plane over <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah i was fairly uh i i knew it was going to be difficult i mean it was just we had a lot to do you, i mean you've seen it we we didn't help ourselves we have a montage in the middle of the film a deliberate montage because it's showing six months but filming a montage on a budget means 
is is harsh because you've got maybe 40 setups that all you'll all you'll see in the film is what we shoot in terms of it's two people walking down a road and then but that's each one of those is a setup and and probably a different location so we had a lot of that to do um and and ultimately we didn't finish everything so we had to come and do one day in april this year in in shepparton studios in the uk because we just couldn't afford to go back um and it was funny how that was a different filming experience in the sense we were a bit more experienced um the weather was nice the days were longer um we didn't really have dialogue to to shoot it was just stuff for the montage and actually all of the behind the scenes of that day i'm smiling but all of the behind the scenes photos of ireland i'm incredibly serious and stony faced (laughs) Um, i suppose i had to be like at the moment i'm not on it as a director and a producer i suppose um then it all falls apart as you say it it, it, because it you're the energy to a certain extent especially on a short film or on a small film like that with no money is if your energy's not up, then why would anyone else's be? Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, uh, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough job. I mean, I haven't directed much. I, I've been more in the mainly in the produ- production capacity, mm-hmm. but um, it's quite rare that you see um, directors laughing <laughs> la- laughing whilst making films. Yeah. No, I just, maybe I'm being greedy that I want to have fun on a set. But um, I think you're right. I suppose I've worked with many many directors, and they they never look happy. So no. uh, it's it's a it's a lot going on you know you're editing in your head whilst you're shooting and a million different departments are asking you questions to which you have to have an answer to i mean uh, on a big film like the star wars films i've worked on or whatever i've worked on it's quite it, it there's a i mean and so times my film by 200 it's like there's thousands of questions coming at you <clears throat> excuse me um and um and you've got to have an opinion you've got to have an answer definitive answer and each answer you give costs ten thousand pounds a hundred thousand pounds a million pounds you know what i mean yeah Uh, so i can see the the pressure i know one director on one very very big film who got sick every single day um and it wasn't his money um but the pressure of having four uh, on a big film two or three hundred people standing there at seven o'clock in the morning going okay gov what where do you want it is i mean that's quite a lot of pressure isn't it and then you've got and then you've got the pressure of what what you're doing being good as well you know that's you know the actors rock up and if you if you've cast it right then you're halfway there because they'll be able to do the business but but the pressure of of the physical act but then also knowing that it's got to be good you know and, yeah, and yeah most of the crew don't care whether it's good or not they're just they want to know where to put the light or where you know what i mean like it's yeah there's a kind of physical act of filmmaking that goes against the actual spiritual act which is you're trying to make something beautiful funny romantic or whatever it is you're trying to do thrilling or scary um so the, the pressure's on for for the um for the director and and the producer i suppose and dop you know those the the, the glamorous big jobs are are in those big films well paid because there's a there's a lot that has to go a lot goes on you know what i mean like mm. it's uh it's on a star wars film you know we start sort of 18 months before we start shooting in the location department but the director will have already been on it certainly if he's writing the script as well you know six months before that so there's a you're talking almost about two years to make those films um and you'll be asked questions from what color do you want this glass to 
do you want to spend five million pounds on this or you know like and and but everyone and it's your your decision i, I mean the, uh, there's a lot more people involved in the decision but ultimately the director is the king uh, to a certain extent it sounds like there's certainly two very different hats to be worn which is the creative one which everyone ex- everyone thinks that that is the 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 big part of it but you know you really have got half your head's got to be in kind of logistics and uh, and real real world situations rather than the, the, you know the uh, the creative dreamy stuff you've got to be in, you've got to be in both places haven't you constantly and and then i suppose very easily going back to stanley kubrick who was someone who clearly could do all of that and and never uh, never appears to look like he he broke a sweat over it but he had at some stage, I suppose after 2001, <clears throat> had such power with Warner Brothers that he was afforded almost carte blanche in terms of time and sometimes budget. Um, and that comes from obviously being an amazing filmmaker. But but still, having all of that in your head, and um, is, I've only seen two or three other directors really doing that. Michael Mann, uh, who is a massive um Stanley Kubrick fan um, and Christopher Nolan who's a massive Stanley Kubrick fan so it's strange that the two other people I've worked with um, that I felt similarly had everything going on in terms of producing because both of them are producers they're also both writers but they're directors um, and make films that are very you would almost say kind of Kubrickian in some ways um, in terms of emotions and kind of and style I have very similar ways of directing really which is that they've got everything going on you know they they they're two steps ahead of everyone which i suppose is what is the difference between these amazing directors and 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 not and and me (laughs) um (laughs) but 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 genuinely those those two um and and anyway even if i hadn't worked with them you'd probably go those two are probably modern day kubricks in some ways if there is such thing and there probably isn't yeah, but that, but in terms of just uh, just complete control over the whole process, um, it would be those two really. And I'm I suppose I've been lucky enough to work with them and see them do that. Yeah, I, I suppose to some extent, Stanley Stanley made it easier for himself being in that same position as a producer and you know a collab- collaborator on the script and everything, just like the guys you've just mentioned. I suppose he made it easier on himself because he extended his pre-production time, so he could c- kind of get involved with everything and answer most of these questions that come up during the shoot and have all the answers ready, if not everything put in place already. So I suppose that's one of the one of the reasons yeah. why he he did spend a lot of time in pre-production. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I experienced this in my day job. Anyway, I, I, I work mainly in pre-production, really, as a location scout because it's all upfront, and then, and then, it, and then they find it, and you're done, sort of thing. But um, that's the for me. The even when I made my own film, then the best bits were pre-production, and then post-production. Production itself is just a slog, and it's it's almost like an organised slog in the sense. You've got to make the day, as, as producers say, which is you know make sure you get everything you need on the on the on the list and it's done and then you go home and then you come back the next day and do it again but actually pre-production is where the film's kind of perfect because it doesn't exist um and all the good stuff happens you develop the script you meet the actors you start getting the costumes ready and everything 
that that's a really fun bit you know and obviously i work in that bit so i'm location scout so you go off and you explore and then you come back and then you go with the director and the designer and everything's kind of quite fun um and then the shoot is just brutal even on big films but uh, even more so because it's just massive and then post-production on my one was great fun you know we had great fun in the edit suite because it's where the film comes alive and you you can change the whole film if you're lucky enough to have enough footage which we didn't but you can change the whole film you can change the whole theme of the film really but and then it, and the music comes in and visual effects and sound effects and and all of a sudden you're like wow this is better than i thought it was going to be um but production is is just um is war basically um and i'm sure i'm sure stanley kubrick's probably on record of saying something similar but as you say because he had so much time and people don't have as much pre-production time anymore certainly not at the scale he had so what they have now is is a release date you know that they work backwards um so everything's a panic um and the, and the time that gets crunched is the pre-production time so even even though i'm saying the star wars films are so long pre-production but um it, it that's the time that gets crunched that's where your film is made to a certain extent because you get everything on paper you start to accumulate every, all the notes and as you say that's what Kubrick was doing so when he turned up on day one even though his films took forever um he knew he kind of knew his film already inside out you know yeah. I think Hitchcock was exactly the same it was just like basically by the time you turn up on day one of the shoot you should really you should almost be finished with it to a certain extent it's like it's literally check off the list uh, as you go along um and then allow the magic to happen as it goes along if you're lucky yeah yeah but so i've i've always uh, even and in my experience of kubrick by candlelight was pre-production was fun even though we were low budget post-production was fun and then production was just like a trench warfare good thing that <laughs> good thing that that's the shortest part in, in the uh out of the three exactly. isn't it exactly. <laughs> i suppose <laughs> yeah right so um uh, you said that the film was set in '73, and to a certain extent, 1770, because that's the that's the setting of the film within the film. So, in terms of costume and set design, how did you manage to get what you needed? Uh, you know, period films are notoriously expensive and very yeah, challenging. I suppose it was kind of. I suppose even going back to the first question, in some ways, it part of the the fourth element of my decision to do it was because we work on big films we wanted to make a big film um and we but we wanted to show that it didn't necessarily have to cost uh you know 10 million or 100 million or two you know what i mean mm. but now it was quite expensive to do but actually funny enough the stuff that is up on the screen that's good like locations and sets costumes and stuff like that were probably the and cars cost the least all the locations were free as you'd expect with our kind of pedigree getting those free but of course it was then in the hometown of my mum and dad so i could call on favors and we could we got a castle for free and we got this and that for free and so so actually the really good stuff like the vehicles they all that i did a radio interview and asked for vehicles and the next day i had 40 emails and um so we had you know six seven people came from all over ireland in their in their vans slept in their vans and rocked up and were extras in the film and came back the next day and so all of the really good stuff, costumes, some of it we got for free and then some of it we had to 
to hire and but not massively expensive funny enough the 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 expense is all of the stuff you don't see which is hotels transport it, it, as a producer you know like it's the brutal reality of making the film is is the is yeah. the cost yeah. is wages travel and feeding and feeding you know and, and and you can't make you can't make your film without those but but as a producer and a director um <clears throat> you they're the things you think well i'm never going to see that on the screen you know <laughs> and you don't um but um so so we were lucky so the good stuff um all of the um i had it because of the because of where it was i had a good idea where i wanted to shoot it so we filmed in a beautiful castle in in the town called charville castle which was kind of faded grandeur i suppose is the old way to say it because it doesn't really exist in the uk in the sense we would national trust it so it would be sparklingly clean but it was uh it's kind of a lovely old castle and we used it almost every single room and the people who ran it dudley and all of the guys were fantastic and let us just get on with it really um and then we filmed outside in the field and we filmed in the town we filmed in a pub we did the free churches then we recreated dublin port behind an old brewery um, an old distillery in the middle of the town obviously there was no water or anything well there was a canal near it but there wasn't wasn't the irish sea um so we shot everything in that small town basically um so so the good stuff yeah was was not easy to get but but uh, bizarrely was the free stuff um but it but yeah you if if you were to sit down and say what would you want to do for your first real short film you wouldn't go i want to set something in the 1970s about a film crew shooting in 1770s film, which is no which is known as the most beautifully costumed and made up film in history you 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 wouldn't necessarily put it on your first list of yeah let's do that um but but that was part of our remit in some way, which was to kind of challenge ourselves to make a big short film, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, well, it certainly does come across as being very authentically seventies uh, uh, with the with the setting of that period. Did you go the whole hog and uh, get in touch with NASA to borrow a lens? Do you know what we 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 did? But those the, those lenses are around. And we, our cameras all came from Ari Rental in the UK. Um, and I'd have to check this, but I think at some stage, Vinny had access to those the, to, to the actual lenses, but they don't work on the Alexas, the Ari Alexas that we had to shoot. But apparently, they're either in the UK somewhere, or but they, but they, but they were uh, achievably rentable bizarrely i think that maybe they were in germany or somewhere like that but um so but but of course i suppose the weird thing is now 40 years old 50 years on 40 years on um you 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 now the cameras are so good that you could shoot by candlelight um and it wouldn't be uh record-breaking lenses that would need you'd need to do it and for, uh, amazingly now that you could shoot candlelight on your iphone it's a uh, so, so in a weird sort of futuristic way of, uh, of moving on from Barry Lyndon and Stanley Kubrick, we, we, we were shooting it very similarly without just candlelight and um, with, a norm, with a, what now is kind of a standard digital camera, really. 
so we didn't uh, we didn't have to uh, we didn't have to get the NASA lenses, although we sort of toyed with the idea just just to say we had them. I suppose would be the cool thing, wouldn't it? Um, but yeah, so we um, I would have loved to have got a hold of them, but I, we probably would have been very worried we'd have broken them or something. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I've heard that. Um... Kubrick wanted borrowed the lenses, whether they were his to keep or whether he had to send them back. But it sounds like the the, the lenses he borrowed are still in, in the UK by the sounds of it. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure. I, have to, I can't remember what happened, but because I, I can't imagine they are around. But unless you'd think they'd be unless they're in the in, in the uh, ex, in the travelling exhibition. I can't just think they are. I, a bunch I would of imagine. Oh yeah. I, I, funny enough, I as part of the the. Ex- experience of Kubrick by candlelight I went to Krakow in Poland to the exhibition when it was there yeah. then after that I suppose it it spent time in the US and Mexico now and now I believe it's back in Europe in Copenhagen mm, so yeah but I, I do remember there was a huge amount of lenses there but but I I, I I can't remember the story but there was some I think we almost got hold of something anyway but um I may I, I'll I'll stick with that story because it's quite yeah. whether it's true or not. It's, it's a good story. <laughs> so uh, the big question is how many candles? Well, um, I think we've had something in the region of I'd say two or three hundred, maybe more, of varying sizes. Um, and yeah, so because obviously you, you've seen it, but obviously our comedy angle is about. Uh, part of the village deciding to steal candles to sell back to the film crew, which all of that's completely made up. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so we had a kind of fair amount. So we had massive ones. Um, the biggest one we have, I've still got it here actually, somewhere is it's like a meter long or something it's crazy. It's like a church. candle. Um, and then, and then in the, in the montage, we have a kind of buildup of candles to kind of suggest they're stealing lots. And so, it's amazing how many you need to actually make that look good. You need you need thousands, bizarrely, but we only had hundreds. But we still had quite a few, and I can tell you they're all under my desk right here. <laughs> well prepared for the next power cut, by the sounds of it. Have you got some? Have you got some matches handy? Yeah, that would be the thing. If I that would be the I need a producer, you see, for for the matches. You see, I've only got the candles. So that, that's, <laughs> it's something all. But um, yeah, no, I'm ready. I'm almost the sort of Kubrickian survivalist. I've got my candles ready. <laughs> For a very, very beautifully lit room when when the end of the world comes. Yes. I believe there are around 90 Kubrick references in the film. Uh, I'm sure I noticed maybe half of them when I was uh, watching it. I weren't actually looking for Kubrick references, but I just kept spotting them with being a, a Kubrick fan. How many of these references were planned prior to the shoot and how many just came along on the day? Uh, quite a few were planned. Um, and... and... And then some came on the day, and then some, <laughs> to, to, to get to 90, some I actually almost spotted after the fact, bizarrely. I was like, oh, well, actually, that's a bit like the killing. Yeah. And, uh, so, so, so so, some of them are very obvious. There's there's Flying Candles, um, a la 2001. There's obviously a, a costume woman who's like the full metal jacket drill instructor and... Um, but then even in the credits at the end, certainly for the first five or six panels, each one is in the style of a different Kubrick film. So I'm I'm, yeah. Barry, I'm in the Barry Lyndon font and then there's, there's Dr. Strangelove font. And so there's ones like that. And the, my, my favourite one, and you, you, won't have, you won't have spotted it, um, is in the credits. Got there's, it. I better know it. Was it the hair by Leonard? 
Yes, there you go. <laughs> that was my favourite. I was going to just mention that before That's you did. <laughs> I'm so glad you spotted it. That's my favourite because I, I, we were doing the credits and the credits were like really hard work because we had to make sure everyone got a mention. And then I thought, oh, you know what? I've always liked that credit in barry linden you know so i thought i've got to have that so that's 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 my favorite one of all of them but there's the you know there's there's the shining carpet in various places there's, yeah there's the key uh the key fob from the shining Ooh, in didn't, one spot, scene. didn't spot that oh did yeah. i is that quite uh, hard to spot it's i'd say it's quite hard to spot yeah it's when a, there's a scene in the montage where amy is running down the corridor yeah. into room and she's holding she's wearing she's wearing the shining socks yeah she's also she's got the key fob in her hand and she's got it placed so you can see um a room 237 um yeah maybe i did maybe i did see that although i'm now getting a bit confused with i saw quite a few of the production uh, photos on the uh, on your facebook page yeah, maybe i yeah. picked it up there subconsciously yeah think what my other favorites would be really but obviously aside from obviously huge amounts of uh, Barry Lyndon references in the sense of the script and the kind of the zooms and some of the scenes and the characters. There's you know, then I suppose another one of is is the fake newspaper we've got with some sort of Irish terrorist news, and then on that there's an advert for Calumet. Oh, is there? And yeah, which you, I think you you'd be funny enough. You'll struggle to see it in the film, but actually, I know for a fact because I've got the paper here that we did do the advert. But the the headline at the top of the newspaper is um, is the headline from uh, Clockwork Orange: a Cure for Something Boy or something like that. Yeah. I've got it here. It is Storm Storm Over Crime Cure Boy on the is the headline on the Irish Post, and then yeah, there's an advert for Calumet baking powder in the corner. <laughs> nice. Um, and then, the, and then, my, and actually, I, I tell you what, my my favourite is, and and our Paddy, our visual effects guy, is a massive Kubrick fan, so he was up for every single one of these. Is that we had our, our blue car, which is our kind of getaway car for stealing the candles. Um, its real um, registration was VIP eight. That was that was the car. That's what it turned up with. Um, and and Paddy changed it to. Um, I'll have to remember now. He either changed it to PO. POE114 or CRM114, which obviously both are, are Kubrick references from different films. So yeah. that was so we visual effects the the license plate for for, for a split second, um, purely for Kubrick nuts who hopefully will when it when it eventually ends up when you can just watch it online or wherever you can just sort of try and get your 90 so i i've got the list somewhere i've done i've i've listed the 90 but um some of them are very you you'll go okay you've you've retrofitted that but but some of those are very deliberate so the yeah that was my second favorite first favorite is leonard and then second is visual effectsing the the license plate brilliant well well yes don't, don't tell us any more because i'm sure there'll be more than myself who wants to spend a, a nerdy hour stopping and, and writing a, a list out of what, what i can find and it'll make a great competition at some point I know, absolutely <laughs> um you spoke briefly about the post-production process was there any particular problems during that post-production process and how long was it in fact how, how long did you say it took from getting the footage finished to well, I suppose it was, we finished in December and then Christmas happened, so nothing happened. Um, and then by January, I was off scouting um, for the Han Solo film, um, uh, which was the day job. And so then, and then we had a couple 
couple of editors and they started and they couldn't finish they got other jobs and so we were in that kind of post-production hell then of kind of never finishing it It i mean it looked quite bleak at one stage it was like february march we were like it's never going to finish or start the finish because people would start and then they weren't available and um and then by and then we i think maybe in march we met ben leach who became our editor and he was amazing a great kubrick fan as well and um and mainly does music videos and commercials and really cool stuff like that so but we really wanted to get into narrative editing and stories and um and then he took it on and just started cracking away at it and actually it was quite simple to edit in the sense we didn't have a huge amount of footage because we couldn't afford it and we couldn't we didn't have the time and also it was quite a linear production in the sense that you know there's it was quite well scripted, I suppose, and quite storyboarded. So it was, we, it wasn't, it was quite lean um, for budget reasons, but also just the way I shot it. It was just, I, I needed, only needed what I needed to, to a certain extent. Um, so, so editing was took a few weeks, and then we we'd go and look at something, and then it would wouldn't work, and I'd go off maybe, and then he would be only available the next week, or you know. So, that, funny enough, those blips in time actually helped the process because you leave it for a bit and you come back and you watch it and then all of a sudden so there's a fight in the film and with the first time we edited the fight it was really well edited but it wasn't there was something wrong with it and it took me you know a couple of weeks just sort of thinking about it and and it it just wasn't funny um so we recut it so it looked shit i it looked like one of those sort of bridget jones fights you know so, so it wasn't. They're not good fighters, you know. So, because editing can make anyone look great. So, good editing of a fight sequence makes it look like these guys are two John Waynes fighting each other. And actually, what we wanted was two, uh, you know, two Rowan Atkins fighting each other. <laughs> yeah, and it does come across that way. So, but you actually, you actually shot it uh, less Rowan Atkinson, did you? That that kind of came uh, in the edit. Well, how we shot that bizarrely is we uh, we they just fought and we left still in the room with the camera and the grip and they just fight they just fought for x amount of minutes and then and we shot it four or five times so then i thought well what i'll do is then i've just got enough to make a crazy fight but as i say so then when we edited it 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 was we took the crazy out of it and actually it was really it was a good fight so 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 things like that in editing were fascinating where you just kind of abandon something and then come back to it and and then obviously the montage was almost like a pop video in itself and that was great because he he hit you know we had this great track um and he just hit the the beats of that constantly and and you can kind of see in the film even though it came out long after it almost has a sort of baby driver effect because because he literally uses the music as the uh, as the cuts and 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 like the clapperboards in the on screen are cutting to the music and so that was great fun and then the music obviously was a massive part of that post-production really we've my cousin gavin cowley was the music supervisor and um and so he brought together his cousin bizarrely so i suppose that's my second cousin um you and cowley so he produced uh, some of the music or- original music but then obviously um some of the music from barry linden some of it which is completely free obviously like sarah band and things like that we could obviously as long as we played it ourselves um so we had we had a great music session in april or may i think it was may of this year where we went to dublin to this amazing studio and all of these incredible musicians came in 
um, by the hour um, with you know a Bowron drum or a violin or a viola or you know it was amazing um, and then slowly but surely all of this kind of music came together um, and then I suppose our story within that was that the music I really wanted to use was Women of Ireland which was written for Barry Lyndon by Sean O'Reader or Raider uh, and played by um, Chieftain um, and then that became the love theme of, of that of Barry Lyndon so we got permission to use that music and then I approached Sean's son Pader to play on that track so it's kind of it, I suppose it doesn't it doesn't make any difference but there's a kind of real sense of Barry Lyndon history in the sense his son plays on his dad's own track from Barry Lyndon and then we needed 70s music and I I went down the road of approaching um all the big companies and asking you know I had a couple of tracks in mind and I had one track in mind for the for the montage and got down the road with it and it was like reasonably priced and I thought okay it's so good I'll get it what was that it was um a whiskey in the jar by um Finn Lizzie so it was perfect 70s Ireland you know but cool and and that was looking kind of good and I thought oh wow okay this is this would be amazing and then and then it got really expensive <laughs> and then I went okay forget it um so we were in a mix then really in the sense we would either have to create our own 70s track which which sort of sounds easy but for it to be authentic is quite difficult you know like there's that it, without it sounding like a sort of piss take you know what I mean and and what we were trying to do was make it feel like it was a 70s movie. You know what I mean? Um, and then um, I think one night Gavin emailed me and said, um, I found this, these guys on YouTube called Cromwell. And they, they were a, a three, three or four guys um, from Ireland in the, in the early to mid-70s, did one album. Um, and he sent me the first track, which is Down on the Town. Ask me. 
and I was like, it's fantastic. Um, so, and then we started editing to that, which is a dangerous thing to do because you kind of go, now I love it. It's it's in. So, and then, so I found um, Patrick Brady, who was the guy who was uh, the um, the head of the the band at the time, but now is kind of the the band to a certain extent in the sense he owns the music, and he now lives in Sydney um, and still a musician. And I said, oh, you know, we really love your track. Um, we'd love to use it. And he instantly said. I'd love you to thank you very much you know and so that was amazing and then and then we uh, and I suggest listening to the album it's a great piece of 70s rock has that been re-released on CD it's not that rare is it is it a total rarity that you had to get digitized off, off a vinyl or it was for a while and then bizarrely I think two years ago and that's not how we found it, it, it some company in Dublin has remastered it and re-released it I think uh, but we used the their original so if you, when you listen to it certainly when you're in the cinema you'll really hear the crackle so it's a real it's it's really off the record um and then so then we thought well it'd be nice to have a track at the end of the film and of course then they had they had another track that i really liked which was called the first day which kind of fit the theory of how it ends you know that it's only the beginning of of something and so we got these two amazing 70s authentic 70s tracks um with with the guy's blessing and and uh, hopefully you know if our film does well hopefully people will go who the hell are cromwell and, and look into their back catalogue but they were a great they had a great album it's really really fun um, i'll look out for them yeah i'd like to uh, investigate things i haven't heard before uh, you visited uh, Chiddickborough, the home of Kubrick's family, yeah, uh, yeah. in the summer this year, I believe. Um, yeah. It was uh, Stanley's wife, Christiane's art fair, which I believe she does every year. Um, did you tell the family about the film? Are they aware of the film? They are aware of the film, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, because, I, because I'd because i met Michael Stevenson, the second AD, and I know him relatively well um, through work, um, he was like, he gave me uh, Jan Harlan's uh, email and phone number. And he said, oh, you know, and this was back in November, I suppose, or October of last year. And he said, oh, you know, just let them know about it. And, you know, just, I, I don't think we're ever looking for any kind of endorsement, but it was like, you know, just to let them know. I, I suppose ultimately maybe he was worried that, because he didn't know entirely what we were up to, whether it was going to be a piss take or, or, you know, or derogatory about Stanley, or you know, um, yeah. which obviously you know, it, it, it certainly isn't. And I think, in, if nothing else, it's like a love letter to Stanley Kubrick films. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I did get in contact with Yan, and he never really replied. And then more recently, I think I emailed him again, and I just said, "Oh, you know, it's sort of happening now, and it's coming out." And and he replied instantly and said, um, "I'll have a look at it." And so he has had a look at it, but he never replied beyond that. And again, I'm sort of mildly happy with that to be honest because i they're, they're they're you know rightly so they're very protective of the brand of kubrick now and, and rightly so um but uh, and but also uh, there's nothing in it that would make them go uh, you know i can't i i i, I don't want to ever see this again i mean i suppose in some ways there's probably nothing they could do but also uh, hopefully if they saw it and i'm sure i think yan probably has seen it um that would offend them really i think it paints him quite nicely and and also ultimately it's kind of bizarrely not really about him i suppose it's about it's about his films definitely as a theme but also it's it's sort of a love story and hopefully a funny one so i can't imagine and from what i heard about stanley he had a very 
very very keen sense of humor so who knows he might have even found it quite amusing but but it's definitely not a documentary put it that way so it's not oh, for sure that's why I yeah. at the beginning i said to you was it what you're expecting because some people i've met have gone oh is it about literally the making of barry linden and i was like well it's not really it's about it's about his films as a as a reference but also it's about film crews generally but also it's a it's as i say like an ealing comedy hopefully is what i've tried to make mm. um so yeah so they i think they're aware of it um and i had great plans when i went to the house for the art fair to kind of bump into one of them and go i'm that guy um in the end i didn't do that i had a very nice time there. it was a fantastic event i have to say um and really family oriented which reminded me constantly about um what Kubrick was like he had a great family and lots of pets and loved his house and so that kind of reminded me a bit of 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 him as a person really that he he wasn't he is he isn't or wasn't like the, the even even if he created his own persona or the press did he was quite funny had a big family loved his family um and loved pets and all of that kind of thing so you kind of appreciate the man slightly more when you're in his house around his house bizarrely um because it was a very family orientated event but yeah so anyway as long as i don't get an email saying um don't ever show it again i'm quite happy <laughs> yeah but, well, well i think the, i think there's other a lot a lot of other things out there that are gonna get that call before you do yeah, good. <laughs> uh, you've uh, you showed the film at uh, encounters in bristol Yes. Uh, in September, uh, what was that like? That, I suppose well, that'll be the first premiere because it's the first film you've made. So, how did that go? It was good. It was nerve-wracking, bizarrely. I, I was quite nervous. It was a great experience. Like we met lots of people, and obviously, there's lots of filmmakers there. I felt incredibly old because most of the filmmakers were in their twenties. Um, but yeah, it was it was really good fun. And and but the and our screening wasn't till quite late, so it was quite a long day of of other stuff other screenings and meetings and workshops and then and then kind of building up to kind of um watching it really and then as i say it was kind of a weird out of body experience really we were the second film in the in that sort of that night so it was probably 10 or 12 films i think and we were the second one so at least we didn't have to wait until the end um but yeah it turns out it, it comes on the screen and you kind of you uh, get incredibly ill thinking about it and then and then i sort of almost luckily people started laughing at various pieces and i, I and then you kind of come out of yourself slightly thinking now i can just listen in and see what people are laughing at and what they're reacting to what they're not reacting to so it was it was fascinating but and i love the fact that it was finished then by the second film so i could actually enjoy watching watching the rest of them um but it was great it was really exciting and then and then bizarrely, the next day, we just received, just by coincidence, lots of other festival um, acceptances, really. So lots of Irish film festivals the next day, not because of where, not because of encounters, but just the way the dates stacked up, kind of emailed the next day and said, yeah, we've accepted you, we've accepted you, accepted you. So it was kind of quite a, a buzzy 24 hours, really. It's not that easy to get into film festivals. I mean, there are... There's a lot of festivals out there, as you know, but not not that easy to get in there. Um... It's really it's it's a whole uh, talking about learning stuff. I mean, it's even more of a of a learning curve now because I've never done this. I mean, I suppose I've been on a film set and I've made a couple of short films, so I suppose 
I can make a short film, I suppose. But but I've never entered a festival, and I don't know the politics and the process. And so it's been it's been quite uh, even more brutal than the filming, bizarrely. This bit because you because then you're you're putting it out there to who knows who, um, and you know they they can decide within a second whether they like it or not. You know because it's completely subjective to to the style of the festival or whether they like comedies or whether they're in a good mood that day or you know what I mean there's so many variables um and it's I suppose it's the same process of putting a film out there to be bought you know it's you don't know who um you you don't know if they're going to go for it you know what I mean so so we've had lots of rejections um and and there's probably different reasons for that the some of them might be they don't like it as simple as that um, and some of them might be because it's quite long, which is quite hard to program eighteen-minute short films. Um, because you're because the theory being is you know something like a twenty-minute short film, you're losing potentially three other films. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, so we're up against that a bit. I've, since being at Encounters, we've met people from film festivals saying they tend not to like to program films about movies because it looks a bit incestuous. Mm, yeah. But, but 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 my counters to them was most of the people who go to film festivals are filmmakers. So mm, yeah, what what a better audience is there? Um, but saying that, we are now picking up a sort of bit of steam in in Ireland, which you'd expect. Obviously, you, you should expect it to kind of at least strike a chord there because of the subject matter and the time it uh, you know the time it's set and also the Irish actors. So it's sort of we've got a little run in October of of this year where we've got one every weekend for four weekends, which is great. Right. Uh, um, not very good for my liver if I try to go to all of them. For but, your um, liver? Why does it always involve uh, hurting your it's, liver? It's, it's, it, seemed, it, seemed, it, it seemed to in Encounters, because <laughs> I, what I noticed about film festivals just by doing that one was the, the work, and it's quite what well, it's work, <clears throat> is is the networking and the meeting and, and inevitably drinking. Um, but not always, but... Um, but that's actually the work is is kind of getting the film out there, making the connections, reminding people that it's on tonight or tomorrow night, and and then afterwards saying, "Did you see it? Do you want to meet up next time?" You know. That, so I realised that was actually the that's the graft of film festivals is kind of getting the card out there. Certainly, when a big one like Encounters, um, there was film festivals there looking for films, so you have to make sure you meet those people and you make sure they either see it in the cinema or they can go and watch it in a booth or something like that. And it, and so we made some good connections on that basis, but we were kind of making it up as we go along because we did, now we will learn to be, it's, it, we realize it's, it's, it's all about the, the card in the hand and kind of, um, which is quite, that's a, that's an art in itself networking. I'm not naturally disposed to kind of going up to people across the room, but that is the job literally go across and go, hello, I'm, I'm, I made, this film uh, who are you you know um so i imagine that's going to be similar in ireland on a smaller scale i think but also just naturally there's going to be lots more alcohol there <laughs> <laughs> yes uh the guinness uh, uh, etc uh, and that, that's the kerry kerry film festival and the offline film festival they're the ones yeah. coming up in october i think aren't exactly they? so offline is a special screening because that's the offly um film festival so that's where it was shot so it's kind of a nice place for us to start the run really with a special one-off and then we then we go to the Kerry Film Festival where we're nominated for best Irish narrative which is exciting uh, 
and so by the time this probably goes out I'll, I'll we're very unlikely to win it but it's quite nice to have the nomination and then after that we go to a film festival called the richard harris international film festival which i'm really excited about because i've always been i've been a long uh, long fan of richard harris um and this is a film festival created in his honor i suppose but also managed by jared his son and some of the family so that's going to be exciting and then we go to the waterford film festival which is very small but of course barry linden was shot in waterford so it has a kind of special resonance it's where that mountain is um so i'm not sure if i can afford to go to every single festival but i'll try because that's the fun bit i suppose where the film's out and and you can kind of gauge how it's going down, I suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, have you got uh, any plans to get the film seen wider than the festival circuit? Is, I mean, I suppose it's a bit difficult um, getting a short film out there on DVD, etc. That's not something that really happens. But is there plans to, you know, do a, a release online at some point? For the... I, think, I think so, yeah. I think because of, I suppose almost because of what we talked about, is hopefully it's got a kind of, it's got a, and we look, but there's no secret about it. We hooked onto an, an amazing brand. Also, it's Kubrick will draw people in, but I think there's there's fun to be had in it in terms of even as you say spotting the references and um, and hopefully it's quite a fun film. So I suppose it uh, how the process seems to work is you spend some time getting the film out to festivals, and sometimes that doesn't work at all. It just depends how your film is. There's lots of very successful short films that didn't do well at film festivals and then make money online or on on or even on airlines bizarrely and you know like there's a there's loads of other little ways of of getting the film out there so i suppose we're just gonna see how it goes with the festival run and and if it if it doesn't really happen then we start to think of other ways because you can you know the whole world has changed isn't it you can put your own film on itunes and um, and and see what the response is, and you never know. You could have a hit on your hands. And then yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Oh yeah. Of course. There, is, there now is a, a revenue for shorts, isn't there? With the old uh, with the with the downloads. Of course there is. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you know. And I I don't think it's it's not going to change your life, but it's but it's also just a different way of getting the story out. I suppose, isn't mm. it? So so yeah. I suppose one step at a time. We've kind of. We'll see how it goes over the next few months, and then and then see whether there's really anywhere. I'll put it this way: we're not going to make our money back, and I don't think no, anyone that, ever expects yeah. to do a short film, if indeed on any kind of film, to be honest. But um, but it's about getting it's about getting awareness of the film, but also then ultimately getting the next film, yeah. which that might be. So that hopefully someone would see that film and go, okay, well sort of seem to have cracked that with very little money i wonder if you could deliver 90 minutes for for a little bit more money (laughs) you've certainly cracked it it's a film that will stand up against any film of of of, you know it's a high quality film there's no doubt about it um kubrick by candle candlelight it doesn't feel like uh, i mean a lot of short films can suffer from the old uh um, low budget student film kind of thing, but yours is absolutely you know on the on the top level of um, of short films. There's no doubt about it. It's a very well made film. It's it's great. You should be very proud of that. Uh, very good on the poster Stephen thanks for that (laughs) (laughs) it'll be a a big poster but it'll be one of those ones where it has the the three dots in between where where clearly 
and said something bad about the film. <laughs> in so the it was the best film I've seen this year. Uh, <laughs> about about, yeah. Stan, about Stanley Kubrick filming Barry Lyndon, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, um, yeah, and I, I, we tried our best to kind of make it as movie-like, I suppose, is what our, our remit was. You know, just like it felt, it felt like something from the 70s, but also just kind of like one of those old, big old-fashioned kind of movies, you know, which is what we like um uh to watch um and i and i sort of i know exactly what you mean about because i i haven't really been to many film festivals so and i think if i had been i might not necessarily have made this film this way if that makes sense because i because even being at encounters and now watching a few more online the the budget forces you to tell a certain story which is relatively small scale and and it's no joke really i suppose it has to be kind of kitchen sink level of story it has to be because you haven't got much time you haven't got much money um and i suppose if and that's what goes into film festivals so it kind of is this sort of vicious circle is that's what gets programmed because that's what there's a lot of and then the people who go to see it are the people who made it so they so that sells tickets and so it kind of goes on and on and that's i've only discovered that since I think if I'd been to lots of them, I probably wouldn't have made Kubrick by Candlelight. I would have been scared that we wouldn't have done any business with it. Yeah. Because because it's funny, which is – hopefully it's funny. But um, that's not necessarily what film festivals like. They don't like to program comedy in the main because it's because it's it, it's a it's a tricky one because sometimes you're getting if, – if people are coming in to see 10 films in 90 minutes – you're you're safer with drama than you are with comedy i think mm. seems to be um so uh, yeah i think in a strange way i'm i'm glad we made the film we made but i bizarrely i probably wouldn't have made it um um i i probably would have if if i'd been if i knew the film festival circuit like i'm beginning to learn now i probably would have made something very very straight laced and beautiful about the making of Barry Lyndon and then and then and then it might not have been what I wanted it to be and and probably wouldn't be true to myself and what I like and what I like to write and what I like to watch and so but I've so so on that basis I suppose who knows what will happen to it in a sense it, it either it'll either take off or it won't because of the length and the comedy angle and but but in some ways, uh, who, who cares? <laughs> we made it. <laughs> okay. Thank you big time to David and Stephen. We spoke to David on the 4th of October, 2017. Keep your eyes out for David's film, Kubrick by Candlelight. I believe David is currently looking at a wider release beyond the film festivals. During our interview, you heard two tracks from Barry Lyndon, which were commissioned and re-recorded by David for the film. The first was Saraband, written by George Friedrich Handel, and the second was Women of Ireland, written by Sean O'Riada of The Chieftains. We also played Down on the Town from the brilliant 70s Irish band Cromwell from their 1975 album At the Gallop, which is reissued and now available once again. Of course, seek out the original Stanley Kubrick film, Barry Lyndon, of which David's film was inspired. The Criterion Collection has recently released a fantastic version on DVD and Blu-ray. Thanks to Mike from Nelson for telling us who is Stanley Kubrick. And of course, 
thanks to our guest host, the inimitable, supercalifragilistic, superfantastic, mega-talented, and all-around lovely Stephen Rigg. Also, a big thanks to Mis Compañeros, James Marinaccio, and Stephen Rigg for keeping the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook running smooth as warm butter on a bedsheet of toast. Hey, please don't forget to rate and review us whenever you listen to our podcast, as we very much want to know what you think, guys. Even drop us a message at SCAS. In our next episode, we will be chatting with film producer Adam Rakoff about his Full Metal Jacket Diary app, which he developed with Matthew Modine. I'm now going to leave you with a brilliant track used in the closing credits of Kubrick by Candlelight from the Irish band Cromwell called The First Day. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Kubrick's Universe, and thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, humble narrator, and horrible impersonator of an amalgam of English accents, Jason Furlong, wishing you and yours a very lovely dose of warm sunshine and question mark rays. So until next time, thanks for tuning in. See you on the flip side. And till then, mis amigos, amici me. Meine Freunde, mes amis, my drusia, my friends, see you out in the universe. Tati bye. You got so, so many questions about what is and what is not. But you know for each, there's a million answers and not one of them.
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon.